We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, um, verse 11 and following that Charles read to you. Stay with me here. In verse 11 through verse 14, you saw a symbol of the nation of Israel and God. It says, he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, looking around at everything. He left for Bethany, that's right outside the city, just right down Crumb, okay? It's right outside of Jerusalem is Bethany. It's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live that put Jesus up with his men. And so he left for Bethany with the 12. It was already late. And on the next day, when they left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came, he found nothing but leaves. It was not the season for figs. Uh, Throughout the Bible, the nation of Israel is referred to as either an olive tree or a fig tree. Uh, here, this is a symbol of what he is going to find in the nation. It is a fig tree, but it has nothing but leaves. When he came in Jerusalem, if you remember, what did they wave before him? Palm leaves. And so you see a tree with no fruit and a nation with nothing but leaves. It is why in the triumphal entry, if you remember, everybody was crying out, uh, Hosanna, save now. They saw Christ as a political man, as a general. And if you remember what Jesus did in Luke 19, 41, Jesus wept. He wept at the parade. And he said, if only you had known the things that make for peace. To find peace, it's a right heart before God and men. And all you've got is religion. And so, a fig tree with no fruit, a nation with nothing but leaves. And it tells you here uh, in verse 13, it was not the season for figs. Now, that's kind of a funny deal. Why are you looking for figs when it's not the season for figs? Well, it's our Easter. It's springtime. And the first ripe fig was what you looked for because that was the sign that the long winter of death had ended and new life had come. And the growth on a fig tree is called a taksh. It's spelled T-A-Q-S-H, a taksh. And it's a nodule and it's sweet. And when you see it come, that means it's the first ripe fig, that there's life. Well, let me show you something here. Keep your finger right there and go to your left to the book of Hosea. Isaiah... Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and hitting in the five spot is Hosea, great Hispanic prophet. <laughs> Can you say that anymore? We're a church, okay. okay. In, in Hosea, in chapter 9, God talks to that dead northern kingdom about what he wanted to find. And in Hosea 9 and verse 10, God says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fig, the first ripe fig in its first season. That meaning 
after the debacle of the Tower of Babel and all of the nations that go out in their barrenness, God said, I looked to Abraham. I looked to the new nation of Israel and they were my delight in a world of idolatry. Here was a world that had an infinite personal God with a revelation of himself, with a promise of salvation. Here was the nation of truth that I saw Israel like the first ripe fig of life. And in verse 11 or 10, they came to Baal Peor on the Exodus journey and they devoted themselves to shame. They became as detestable as that which they loved. And as for Ephraim, the northern kingdom, their glory will fly away like a bird. And it talks here about their glory. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Their glory was, remember God said to Abraham, that I will make your seed like the stars of heaven and I'll make them like the sand uh, on the beach. And God says, there will be no seed. You are going to be sent into exile and you will not find a Jew as far as you can look. And he says in verse 12, though they bring up children, I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart. What, uh, that remind you of something? God has departed. What's that in Hebrew? Ichabod, it's about to happen. I am about to withdraw from your nation. And with me withdrawn, you're going to lose it all. Is that still true? Yeah. yeah. And so go back here to this Mark 11 text. He comes looking for the first ripe fig. He comes looking for Abraham's faith. He comes looking for what Israel should be. They are the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the fathers. They are supposed to be flourishing. And instead he finds a tree with no fruit and he goes into a temple at Passover, the time of the highest worship. And what does he find? He finds again, barrenness that Israel has turned the worship of God into an industry. Uh, you know, something kind of interesting here. If you'll go to your left, again, to the book of Luke, and in Luke chapter 13, go to that. No, don't go to your left. That's the wrong way. See, I was testing you, and I'm very impressed. <laughs> go to your right, to the gospel of Luke in chapter 13, just before Christ goes in on his journey or his triumphal entry, it says in verse 6, let me tell you a story. He says in verse 5, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. See also uh, Hosea 9, 10 through 12. You will perish. And in verse 6, he began telling them this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, that is Israel and God. He came looking for fruit on it and didn't find any. See also Hosea 9. I came, came looking for the faith that I had given you in Abraham that had been declared and dictated in Moses and the law. I came looking for that and I didn't find it. And so in verse seven, 
He said to the vineyard keeper, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree without finding any. How long was Christ's ministry? Three years. I've been looking for three years. This is the last call. The book of Hebrews, God who long ago spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many forms and in many ways, in this last day has spoken in his son. This is it. Beyond Christ, God does not go. He cannot go. It's him. And so in verse 7, I've been looking for three years for fruit without finding any. What's he say? Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? This is it. You are about to go into exile. I said to you in the law of God that if you turn away from me and follow idols, I am going to send warning shots. And the last thing I will do is just like a rebellious teenager, I will remove you from the property. If you don't want to submit, you will have none of the perks and you're out of the land. That happened to Israel for 20 centuries. And so in verse 8, he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, what's the last three words say? Cut it down. And so this had gone out. This is your last call. And if I cannot find fruit in this last visit to Jerusalem, you're leaving, you're, you're leaving town. I'm going to turn this nation into a parking lot. And he did. And so go back here to Mark. This is a very ominous thing. I found no fruit on you. You remember that text in Matthew? It goes like this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a hen does her chicks and you were not willing. Your house is about to be left to you desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's about to be destruction and desolation and judicial darkening until you're willing to say, blessed is he. At what book is that in your Bible that Israel calls out, blessed is he, it's Revelation. And so you're about to go through a big darkness where you are alien from me and everything else. You know, it's interesting. He's looking for the first ripe fig. He comes through Jericho and there's a lot of interested people, but no real repentance. And he stops at a fig tree and he looks up in the fig tree, and he saw something. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the sycamore tree. A sycamore is called a fig tree. A sycamore fig. Remember the book of Amos? I am a uh, pruner of sycamore figs. He looked up in the sycamore tree. For the Lord, he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, I'll be darned. There's the littlest IRS agent I have ever seen in my life. Come down, for I must stay at your house today. And he came down 
And as they go to his house, he starts thinking about where that furniture came from. Lord, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much and half my possessions I'll give to the poor. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house because he is a son of Abraham. Isn't that interesting? So he did find fruit. Zacchaeus, that the name Zacchae means the righteous one. He found one. Just one ripe fig. That's all you found. Little bitty fellow, all right? About two one. That's all he was, all right? Well, in verse 14, it says the disciples were listening. They knew this was a whole lot more than just about a fig tree and some fruit. And in verse 15, the symbol is now lived out in substance. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He had found that the true love of God had turned into an industry. Let me show you something interesting also. Go back to your left to the book of Malachi. Last Old Testament book. And in Malachi chapter 1, find it there. Here's the last book of the Old Testament. You know, you never in um, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, that are the post-exilic books when Israel came back from exile, you never see idols anymore. There's nothing like 70 years of captivity to purge you of idols. But the sin in Israel had mutated, all right? Kind of like COVID, you know? It had mutated into a new sin, and it was a heinous self-righteousness and bringing the law down to where it was amenable to human standards and you could find a way to earn salvation, which was the very opposite of why the law was given. And that was the faith that Christ came and faced, was that kind of clean the outside of the cup and let the inside be dirty. And so in Malachi 1, God says, uh, let me see, where is it? Y'all visit with each other right here. Where does it say, oh, that there one, there it is in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I wish there was one priest. The context in verse 6 and following is the priesthood. I wish there was one priest in this country, God says, that would go into the temple and clear the temple and shut this error down. Remember the book of Ezekiel? God sought for a man among them that would stand in the gap and build up the land before me that I might not destroy it. Build up the wall before me and I found no one. God said, I wish I had one guy in leadership that would stand up and say no. You know who that guy is going to be? Well, take a look at uh, chapter 3 of Malachi and verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, John the Baptist. He'll clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. We see John the Baptist. Who's the Lord that's going to come to his temple? It's Jesus. And he is the messenger of the covenant. He's going to bring the new covenant. In whom you delight, he is coming. But who can stand the day of his coming? It's looking here 
to the second coming when Christ purifies the nation. The way that the New Testament sees it is that this text has a near and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is here comes John the Baptist, he comes, here comes Jesus, but he doesn't come and completely judge Israel. He clears the temple, but he goes away, he collects out of people, and someday he's going to come again, and he will cleanse the temple. And so go back here to Mark in chapter 11. And so we have Christ in verse 15 carrying out what the book of Malachi says Messiah will do. He's clearing the temple. And in verse 16, he wouldn't permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. That's an interesting text right here. Uh, the word in the New Testament for um, differentiating between right and wrong is a word that means to carry through. Like when you go to an airport and they stop you at the metal detector. I got stopped once because I had some nose hair clippers. And they differed. That's what the word differ means. It means to carry through. And it's a word that was used in the temple. No, don't bring that through. You ever read in the Old Testament about certain Levites that were gatekeepers? That's a metal detector. You can't bring that sacrifice in. You, you're unclean. Out, nope, sorry. Well, there were metal detectors. They were scared I was going to Shanghai that flight with my nose hair clippers here. And I lost a good pair of nose hair clippers. Okay. I said, no, you can't bring that through. And it said that that's the purpose of the law of God. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and are confident that you can judge the things that differ, that a Jew with his Bible could say, right, wrong. They just didn't do it. Well, Christ here comes and he says of temple traffic, no, no, we're not going to do that. It's like God wanted the nation to do. And so in verse 16, he wouldn't pit permit them to carry, to carry through merchandise through the temple. And I'm going to give you a great quote here from the Zondervan study Bible. Uh, Jesus says in verse 17, he began to teach and to say to them, is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Where Christ was in the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. There was the court of the women that they could go in no further. There was the court of the Gentiles. And if a Gentile crossed that barrier, he could lose his life that uh, Rome had given Israel the privilege of taking life of a Gentile that tried to crash the barrier. And so uh, the court of the Gentiles is where they were holding this temple traffic because their thought was, if it makes the Gentiles unclean, who cares? They're not Jews. Well, in verse 17, who cared? Huh? Jesus did. He cared about what the nation is supposed to be in 17, a house of prayer for all the nations. God to Abraham, in your seed, singular, in one Jew, in your seed shall the nations be blessed. Is there one particular Jew 
that you and I are very fond of. It is called the Messiah of God who gave his life that we could come. And Christ says, that's who God is. He is the God of all men. You have cast out the Gentiles. This is a great text if you ever do a conference that is a missions conference, where now Israel had lost their higher purpose to be a blessing to the entire Babel world scene that they didn't. Incidentally, when does God set aside Abraham? It's uh, Genesis 12. What took place in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel? And you see the milkweed go out to become the nations that are now grounded in idolatry. The word gods never appears in the book of Genesis until Genesis chapter 12 and following. That man now makes gods. And out of this mess of the nations that the Bible will simply call Babel, God takes a Jew and makes a miracle nation. And that is the nation of Israel through whom shall come his word and the Messiah and his salvation. Aren't you glad? You have been enjoying this and you didn't even know what was going on. All right. And that's what God's going to do. So Christ says, now I'm interested in these, the, the uh, Zondervan study Bible. It says, uh, by allowing the court of the Gentiles to become a noisy, smelly marketplace, the religious Jews were interfering with God's provision for them. Robber's den, not only because they took financial advantage of the people, but because they robbed the temple of its sanctity. Isn't that something? Are y'all glad that Jesus did that? And he opened the way for you and I to go in. Well, in verse uh, 18, we continue. In verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. Greater light brings greater rebellion to them. And they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. I think it's interesting. In verse 17, he began to teach. In verse 18, they were astonished at his teaching. Two little bookends on that little brief paragraph. Jesus was teaching and clarifying to the Jews. The temple is God's provision for all men. And we're not going to cast out the Gentiles. This is what God called Abraham, the first father, the first ripe fig, is that we're to be a blessing to all of the world. Have y'all ever read in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, bear much fruit? That is an Old Testament repetition of a number of texts as to what Israel was supposed to be, the Lord's vineyard. But they didn't, they dropped the ball. And so God said, I'll take you and I'll glorify myself. And so he begins to teach. And I think what he taught was Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Israel is to be a candlestick in a dark world. In your seed shall the nations be blessed. I think that right here, Christ starts opening the fire hydrant as to what God has planned for his son and for this nation, what they were supposed to be. Well, in verse 20, are you with me so far? Yeah. Okay. In verse 20, 
They were passing by in the morning. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city back to Lazarus. They were passing by in the morning as the Passover week continues. And they came to the fig tree, withered from the roots. They noticed a supernatural occurrence. Uh, trees don't wither overnight. And they don't wither all of it from the roots to the branch. They don't do that. I know, I've lost numbers of trees. And they don't do that. But they did it. And so these disciples just stopped and said, isn't that peculiar? What, what caused it to die? What was the reason? The judgment of Christ. His word caused it to die. And so it's withered from the roots. And being reminded, Peter said, he goes, hey, I remember. This is the tree you cursed. Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Why did it die? Why did it, all of it die? And why did all of it die suddenly at the pronouncement of your curse? May no one eat fruit from you again. Uh, you know, if you have a, a library, a theological library, you can have a lot of books on theology, a lot of books on apologetics, a lot on philosophy, a lot on um, Bible exposition, but you will find very few of them that are written by converted Jews. You'll get Alfred Edersheim. You can get uh, uh, Feinberg. You can get numbers of them, Zola Levitt, but you're not going to find the copious amount like you're going to find from Germans and Frenchmen and Englishmen and guys from Sanger and Gainesville, okay? You're not going to find it. And that's because Christ said, nobody will ever eat fruit from you again. You're going to die as a nation. Incidentally, he dies from the roots up. If a nation loses its touch with God, will it die from the roots up? Yes, it will. See also the United States. That's why we have the GAP program. And so, Peter said, look, it's, it's withered. In verse 22, Jesus is going to answer why the tree and why the nation is going to wither. He's going to tell you why. But his answer is going to go beyond the symbolic into why morally and theologically the nation is judged. And then uh, to the 12 in verse 22 and following, he's going to, you notice that paragraph is all red, if you've got a red ink Bible. He's going to talk to the 12 on how not to have this happen to you. The tree, fig tree's been cursed. We're about to go to a new dispensation, the dispensation of grace. We're going to set aside law and bring in the new covenant. The old is going to pass away. My people are going to go from Israel to the world, to the church. So how can you keep it from withering Christ is a good teacher. He doesn't waste a lot of time on stuff that isn't going to ultimately matter. He says, let's not talk about fig trees. Let's talk about people. And let's not talk about Israel. Let's talk about you. Let's make sure. You always want to be careful with Christ about raising your hand and asking a question. Okay. Because he will deal deep with that answer. So what I'm going to show you here in, 12, in 22 through 26 is how does a culture keep from dying, and not just a culture. Who are the people of God today? It's the church. 
the ecclesia, those called out, it's you. So how can we keep this from happening in us? What's interesting, once I give you this, you go home and take your Bible and turn to Revelation 2 and 3, where you see the seven churches of Revelation. And you read, and you see, if you don't see, the same three things come up at some point in all of those churches. He loved faithfulness to his word, and Christ deplores the departing from the truth of God to philosophy. And then secondly, he, de he deplores the people of God living an immoral life. And then lastly, he deplores a departure from the truth, a departure from purity, and a loss of your purpose where you no longer have a purpose in this world. You're just spinning your wheels. And so he's going to talk on these seven things. And you know what's interesting? If you'll back up and look at these seven churches, they're going to be curiously parallel to the last 20 centuries of the church age. You'll have Ephesus, that's the Orthodox church that lost their first love, just like at the first century church. Then you're going to have Smyrna, the church of death, there's no rebuke to them. They're faithful. Just like the church from 300 on is now under Roman domination and 10 Roman emperors put us to death. It's Smyrna. And then you'll look at Pergamum where you have some that are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, a heretical cult. That's what happened to the church in the early Middle Ages whenever you have the Roman emperor that's the head of the church and he's the head of the empire. And all of a sudden, you start seeing error come in. And then you've got Thyatira, that now you tolerate the woman Jezebel that leads my servants astray and said, if you don't turn, I'm going to kill you. And now you have the church of the Middle Ages that embraced heresy. Then the next church is called uh, Sardis. That means those escaping. And God says to them, you have a name, you're alive, but you're dead. But there's a few of you that walk with me in white. You're going to have a dead church and those coming out from it. What is that called? It is a protest. What's that called? The Protestant Reformation. And then you'll see the next church is called Philadelphia. And I'm going to open up a door to you that no one can shut. And I'm going to give you copious blessing because you have held true to my word. You saw Protestantism that went back to the word of God and God opened a door. And you saw what was called the Protestant missions. It went to India to China, to Africa, to a place called Virginia and Massachusetts, then up into Canada, then down south. It went all over. It went down to Australia. That's Philadelphia, the church of the open door. Isn't that something? He's following through church history. You know what the last church is called? Laodicea. It means laity decay. It means people run things. And in that church, where is Jesus? I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, hello, where is Christ in relationship to this church? He's outside. He's trying to get in. Did y'all ever see the movie called Sounder? About a black family back in the 20s, 30s, and uh, what they went through. I'll never forget this. It showed at Denton. Y'all remember movies? Y'all remember movies? Things move on the screen. And I watched that movie down at the Fine Arts 
Okay? And these two black guys were talking. And one black guy says to the other one, I had a dream the other night, and I stood before the throne of Jesus. Really? What did he say? He said, child, what would you like? What would you say? I said, Lord, I'd like to get in that white church. He said, Lord, son, I've been trying to get in there myself for 50 years. <laughs> the crowd went crazy. It was the funniest thing. And so Christ is on the outside of the church. I wish I could get in. You're lukewarm. I'm outside the church. That's the church of the last days, Laodicea. Church of, we call it secular humanism. Man makes himself God. And now they're lukewarm because they're so wealthy and they're so rich. They think they don't need God anymore. Can that ever happen to man? Because we invent some stuff. We invent Novocaine and uh, nose hair clippers that we think we don't need God anymore. Which, you know, you have to admit, that's pretty great. And he says to them, if you are lukewarm, I will emeo. You ever take an emetic? Makes you puke. I will spit you out of my mouth. You know what? That's the church of the last days. I'll tell you something interesting. There ain't no eighth church. This is it. The next word you hear is in Revelation chapter 4. I saw a door standing open in heaven and a voice said to me, come up here. And the tribulation begins. What do you think that is? That's the rapture of the church. So don't be buying green bananas. All right. That's why I drive my charger. No, I don't care. You know. right. So in verse 22, Christ says, let me tell you how to navigate this thing as this brand new institution. You know, remember something about your Bible. In the Gospels, Christ will show you an acorn. In the New Testament, the acorn becomes an oak. And so I can show you, I've thought about writing a book called Acorns and Oaks. Christ will always lay a nugget. Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude are going to embellish it and it's going to explode into the next 20 centuries of ideology. And so this is his acorn of the church on why we are not a tree that is withered, the true church. There are four things. He says, number one in verse 22, have faith in God. The New Testament, you don't try to use the law to earn salvation or the law to sanctify you. You do like the book of Romans says, you're justified by faith. Then to grow, you do like the book of Galatians says, if you began by the Spirit, why do you think you're going to get perfected by the flesh? We're going to obey the moral requirement of God and feel the grace of the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, if you want to eat shrimp, lobster, and crab, feel free. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? You don't have to keep the Old Testament symbols. Let it go. You'll still get to heaven. Eat you some bacon, okay? You may get there quicker, all right? So we're going to have salvation by faith. We're going to have sanctification by faith. And we're going to people that, what do you have to have to have faith? A basis of faith. Truth. Sola Scriptura. 
sola fide, sola grazie, sola Christi. And so have faith in God. Let this stuff go down to your gizzard. You let it go deep in you. Have faith in God. Are you with me? Let's look at number two. And in verse 23, then start moving mountains. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it'll be granted him. Isn't that strange? Now, if you know your Bible, you just went deja vu. I've read that. Where did I read that? Of some guys in the Old Testament that are going to rebuild the temple. Y'all remember who the two Jews are that bring back 50,000 Jews and rebuild the temple of God? It comes from the book of Ezra. And as they get back, they start rebuilding the temple and a mountain raises up against them. You know what the mountain is? The Persian government that has conquered the Babylonians. And there was slander against them and the Persian leader put out a, a decease and desist. No, that ain't right. Cease and desist. Don't decease and desist. Yeah, when you decease, you done desisted right there, I guess. <laughs> day, day. Oh, so, cease and desist. That's spoken by the phys ed major right here. Right. And he shut down the temple building. You know how long he shut it down for? 14 years. 14 years. And they were discouraged. And uh, God raised up the prophets Zechariah and Haggai. And they came and showed a vision to them of a candelabra, a candlestick with seven lamps. And on the seven lamps were seven more, 49 lamps. Uh, that's what Israel was to be, a light in the darkness. And beside the lamps, there were two big olive trees. And they're pouring out their oil into the lamp. And God says to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, by my spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the oil of God, shall this be done. So he says, Zerubbabel, we're going to get it done. Israel is to be the light of the world, and we're going to do it. All right? And then he says, say this to Zerubbabel. Oh, Zerubbabel, who has... Uh, despise the day of small things. You're being looked down on for this little tabernacle, this little temple you're building. Some of the guys remembered the first one. It was so big and luxurious. This one's like the kettle restaurant. Okay. He says, man, this is little. God said, who has despised the day of small things? These seven eyes that look throughout the whole earth to support the one whose heart is perfectly his, these eyes will delight when they see the plumb line, the hammer and the and the nails in the hand of Zerubbabel. You get to building, not by might nor power, but by my spirit. And then he says this, and what shall happen to this great mountain? Often in the Bible, a mountain is a picture of an empire. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and learn his word that we may walk in his ways. What shall this mountain be? Before Zerubbabel, this mountain will become a plain. I'm gonna pick it up and cast it into the sea. Question. What was the mountain that stood before Zerubbabel trying to get this temple up? It was Persia. An entire culture had raised up to stop it. Can that ever happen? Yeah. 
And God said, don't you worry. Not by might nor power. I'm going to do this. Well, Jesus takes that story and he applies it not to Israel. He applies it to what's going to come out of the 12 and us. What's the mountain that we have to deal with? It's the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, the prince of darkness. Who are we talking about? Satan and Babylon, the entire system. When you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 17, 18, you see the harlot of Babylon, and God judges the system, just like he said. All that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, thus the eyes, boastful pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. The world is passing away, and the lust thereof. I'm going to take this thing out. I always read Revelation 17 and 18 about once a week. It just makes me feel better. We're going to win. Okay. And so, he says here in verse 23, have faith in God and use it to move mountains. Move mountains. Lloyd Campbell, I see, where are you? There, I see Lloyd out there. Got him in a Bible study years ago. He got excited, started going to the jail ministry and doing jail ministry. Then my brother, Bob, asked me, what could I do to be involved in something where we're reaching some guys? I said, you know, Lloyd Campbell, yeah, he's going to get you in the jail ministry. And there wasn't a month that would go by that I would not get a letter from some ex-inmate thanking me for Lloyd Campbell or Ken Cofelt, or Bob Nelson, or Jack Gill, or one of these guys that was going into the jail sharing the gospel. We moved mountains. Yeah, Lloyd. I remember, Lloyd, I would close in prayer on Sunday, and as I would close in prayer, I'd look up and see my brother Bob get up and take off for the jail, fulfilling a prophecy by my mother. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And that's what God can do. So he says to the 12, don't let the front page scare you. Don't let Canaanite News Network seize you. Don't let CNN scare you. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. We're going. And then he says in verse 23, the way that you do it, you pray. Verse 24, all things you ask in prayer, Believe you've received them. It was talking in the context of mountain moving. So when I pray, Lloyd, down for that jail, and all, how many guys we got going in there, Lloyd, in that jail ministry? Yeah. 20 men and eight. We got almost 30 people from Denton Bible going into the jail and doing, sharing the gospel. You pray, and you believe it's going to happen, and it will, because I pray God open hearts and bring them to faith. This is not some just name it, claim it, prosperity gospel deal. This is in the context of ministry. You pray and see what God does. Years ago, you know, we had a church when we started Denton Bible. We didn't have any building because we didn't have the money to build a building. We didn't have the money to build a building because we didn't have any families that were legitimate wage holders. They were all music majors, all right? <laughs> And so we, we didn't, and, and ex-football players and retired steel workers, male, we didn't have any families to have money to build a building to take care of kids to get families, which meant we didn't have any money to build a building, and it was a catch-22. 
And we just said, let's pray. And we prayed. Mel and I would get up at 4 a.m. for 40 straight days. I would go over, Mel! And we would pray for God. And Mel would write down on a yellow legal sheet what we prayed for. Every, not only did they get answered, we never prayed for 50 acres and $50 million worth of buildings and 4,000 people and, and all that. We didn't pray for that. God did exceeding abundant beyond what we asked or thought. We had to quit after 30 days because Mel got pneumonia. There's no telling what we could have done. <laughs> so he says, you pray and you have faith in God. And then in verse, and, and uh, believing prayer is the means. Listen to this. Though we walk in the spirit, we do not war in the spirit. I'm sorry. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. Uh, the weapons of our warfare are spiritually powerful. We have spiritual weapons, prayer and the Bible and the evidential love of Christ that attracts men. He said, our weapons are not of the flesh, but of the spirit. And then he said, for we war not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the world forces of this darkness. He said, you're not fighting a physical enemy. You're not fighting Adam and Nancy. You know what I'm saying? You're fighting Satan. And he is not intimidated at anything. You're going to have to win through prayer. And he said, the pillage you're going to take. We're pulling down speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. Evolution, abortion, critical race theory, and all that stuff. We're pulling it down. And then we're going in and we're taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. We're brain snatchers. We're going to go in. Remember, Lord, when I snatched your brain back them years ago? You went in, you take them out, and you show them there's a brand new way. And so it's a spiritual battle with spiritual enemies, with spiritual weaponry. Jesus said, you learn how to pray. When I was at Dallas Seminary in church history, Dr. John Hanna said, there's a lot of ologies you can study on the development of them in the church. Christology, theology proper, the Trinity, man, salvation. He said, one study you can't do is prosuchiology. Prosuche is the Greek word for prayer. He said, you can't study prosuchiology. And some guy said, how come? He said, Christians have no history of prayer. He said, Christians historically will not pray until they get scared and then they will pray. And last of all, in verse 25, it's not just mechanical prayer. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father in heaven will forgive you. We're to have warmth and love for each other. Amen? Don't try praying and preaching the gospel and trusting God if you bring people into a nasty church full of... You ever read the book of Philippians? The church was doing good. They're staying faithful to the word. They're doing missions. But they struggled because of two women who couldn't get along. Back in those days, that could happen. Judea and Syntyche, I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Only one is necessary. Lord, girl. 
Beauty and Sinzuki, or as one author called them, odious and soon touchy. <laughs> Can't get along. And so these are the things Jesus said, you want to flourish? Let me tell you, you have a strong foundation of faith. And then secondly, you move mountains. And thirdly, you do it by prayer. And fourthly, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love. love. Blinding flash of the obvious. <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you for this text. Just been laying here for a long time for people to study. And so I pray if we've got one in our midst that is held captive by the devil to do his will. And he has no hope because he has nothing beyond himself to trust in. I offer him faith of the Bible that foretold of the coming of God the Son into human form to live a perfect life and die on a cross and rise from the dead. And of the Holy Spirit of God bringing them in into a new covenant of forgiveness and new birth and sanctifying them and taking them home to glory. So I offer him an alpha to an omega of nothing except what God has done. And Lord, I pray if it's left to him or her, they will gladly go to hell before they will repent. And so I pray for their stiff neck that you would draw them to Christ. And Father, I pray that the mountain might move for them and they could be delivered into the presence of God freed to now have an option they've never had in life, and that is the pleasure of God. And I pray, Lord, that, uh, that they, all of us, might live out our lives with love and winsomeness and forgiveness and kindness. And Lord, we'll just ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.